What should the occlusion look like when you are restoring or replacing a class for restoration? It's a really interesting question, actually. Like, it's so basic, yet so complex. So we're going to make this topic, which is often not talked about enough. And like, we go on all these composite courses and they talk about the layering, but we don't talk enough about how to put the principles of occlusion into action on your class for restorations to actually get a long-term predictable result. Hello, Pratishwarati. I'm Jazz Galati, and welcome back to PDP 150. We've got over 200 episodes of Protrusive now, if you include the interference cast and all the other branches of the podcast that we do. Thank you so much for joining me time and time again. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. You picked a really interesting and fun topic to, to join us on today. Now, every episode, I give you a Protrusive Dental Pearl. And of course, it's going to have to be an occlusion one. Okay, so this is something I learned in my time uh, at Guy's Hostel when I was a DCT. This was like nine years ago now. Uh, and it is when you're checking the bite do you listen to the bite now it sounds really funny but like you know we 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 check tactile we check with the uh, the shim stock foil or the articulating paper we check visually because we see the ink marks on the teeth we could check with our fingers when you bite together you feel some pressure feel some vibrations on the teeth these are all methods of checking the occlusion is something proud is it not but sometimes a really good thing that i like to do routinely after restorations is just listening to the bite. I tell my patients I'm the occlusion whisperer, okay? So I I come up by their teeth and I say, can you tap your teeth together like this? And that's what a good occlusion sounds like, okay? Lots of teeth hitting together uh, at once. If there's a thud, then you know that you're proud, basically. And this is a really uh, good additional tool that you can use. The very last piece of information that you uh, gain from the patient is, how does it feel? That's not that's not the first thing. Usually we're guilty of uh, doing our restoration and saying, we're usually guilty of restoring the tooth, then asking the patient straight away, how does that feel in the bite? Where really, we should do all our checks, make sure we are satisfied, and then the very last piece of information we need to collect is, how does that feel? Because remember, that's subjective. Whereas if you're using objective, objective data, then that's much better. Often helps if you listen to the bite beforehand, if you are new to doing this. Anyway, let's join Dr. Mahmoud Ibrahim and I'll catch you in the outro. Mahmoud Ibrahim, my occlusion brother from another mother. Uh, welcome hey, back buddy. to the show, man. How you doing? Yeah, I'm good, man. I'm good. Thanks for having me again. Dude, I'm so pumped because now obviously OBAB was launched. It was the most difficult year of our lives. Uh, and I think yeah. we've talked about that already. So we won't bore everyone about that. But today it's a really cool occlusion topic that Dr. Huma on the app sent in. So uh, on Petrusa.app, on your web browser or on iOS, Android, there's a community section within the app. And Huma, who's actually a, a, a delegate of OBAB, actually, she's a delegate of yeah. OBAB, uh, but she's done a few with the first module. And she's like, actually, I've got a question. Maybe you cover it later in the course, but uh, I just want to know. And she asked, basically, I'm going to get up the actual full question. Okay, so Huma said, Hey Jazz, I'm enjoying OBAB so far, but my question, which I'm sure you'll probably answer in the next few episodes, when restoring class 4 lesions? Okay, so class 4, guys, is something that involves the incisal edge and the, the, the facial often and the palatal, so a fair chunk of uh, an incisor, an anterior tooth, could be an upper or lower, for example. You check the occlusion beforehand, dynamic and lateral surgeon. What is our aim in order to avoid early occlusal failure. What shall I actually look out for when checking the occlusion once the restoration is complete? 
And so, Mahmoud, this question, it, it could almost be like an essay question in a dental exam because yeah. it, it, it's not like a one or two word answer. You can literally philosophize and debate, which is what we're going to do today we're in the next 26 to, right? and yeah. a half minutes. And I got pumped and I, and I wrote a little answer for a little. It was a little bit longer than a little. And then you wrote an answer. And we thought, OK, this would make a really fun, fun for me and you, uh, <laughs> a podcast episode about what should the occlusion look like on a class four composite restoration. So I guess, where do we begin? And I think the, where to begin is, uh, I thought, Mahmoud, like, what is the reason for actually replacing that uh, that class four incisor, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, so ultimately, it's actually a fantastic question, because we all know occlusion courses tend to go on about full mouth rehabs and stuff like that. But this is the nitty gritty that we all do day in, day out. And no one talks ever, about this. No one talks, even on know, composite courses I've been on, they show us how to layer. It's, it's, just, it's so crazy, actually. They showed us how to layer the class four, use 17 different shades and tints, but no one actually said what the dots and lines should look like. <laughs> Exactly. So this beautiful layer of composite is going to, you know, break off because you haven't paid attention to the occlusion. So it's a fantastic question. And what I love about the question is that it, she's already mentioned the fact that she's going to check the occlusion beforehand, because I think that's where you need to start. That also is never talked about. You can't check the occlusion afterwards if you don't know what the existing occlusion is. So it's it's good to sort of, at least initially, let's say we're going to be doing this class four because there is caries, there is a trauma, fracture, existing class four has failed, maybe just aesthetically stained. But but, but uh, let's chip. talk about that, Mahmoud, one second. On, you know, there's so many different facets of all the different reasons why you might do a class four composite restoration. But the, the easiest one, maybe just to tackle straight off the bat and just tick off, is the one that's been there for 17 years. And it was used to be an A1, and now it looks like an A6, right? Uh, and otherwise, it looks completely unworn. The composite looks good still. The shape is good. The patient's happy with the shape. It's just a shade you want to change. And if that composite in that mouth has survived all those years, then the answer is very simple. Whatever the dots and lines look like beforehand, you just completely replicate it. And that's where you make your putty and, and, you, and you change it over. So that's the easy one to tick off. And I guess the other easy one, we can just really quickly tick off before we get to the more complicated ones, is if your patient has an anterior open bite, you could even make a 3D composite initial of your name on that composite and it will still be okay because the patient has an anterior open bite, okay? So the patient's not occluding functionally or parafunctionally on that, on, on that class four. So I'm not saying do that because uh, it will feel strange to their tongue and stuff. So really with, with AOB cases and you're not doing anything about the anterior open bite, then you can get away with anything and just pretty much copy what's there before or roughly follow the contours of what an incisor should look like. But the main lesson is if the composite's been working well and it's an aesthetic failure, then copy all the good features and just change the aesthetics. Okay, so those are the easy ones. Now, the more difficult ones are the ones that, you know, the patient has walked in either with a fracture or an existing composite that's come off, especially the ones that, you know, the patient walks in and he says, this is the third time this has come off in a year or whatever. Those are the ones where you got to be careful and start thinking about why has it come off? Why do we now need to start thinking maybe slightly differently? But yeah, I was just going to say, one important thing to say is that at the moment, we're conforming to the existing occlusion. Okay, so when you're just doing a single class four in a patient, you're not going to be changing the rest of their bite. You're going to conform to the existing occlusion. Now, as we say as well in OBAB, it doesn't mean we're going to blindly copy what's there. Sometimes we can idealize the situation. And sometimes the reason it's failing is because no one's bothered to look at what the occlusion's doing to it and idealize it. 
Absolutely. And this is a good point, maybe, Mahmoud, to mention uh, is something I talk about, uh, which, you know, a lot of the stuff I talk about is completely stolen and borrowed and uh, and regurgitated because, you know, I've, I've learned so much from my mentors and I pass it on to uh, you guys on the podcast, listening and watching right now. So very few bits of what I say is original, and I'm happy to, to say that. This bit, I think, is my own thinking. Uh, maybe everyone's thought it, but, you know, the whole thing about there's only two types of mechanical failure in dentistry. That's it. There's tooth to tooth and tooth to something else. So assuming the tooth to something else bit is is something that's something you educate your patient. It's out of your control, but you educate your patient. So what I mean by tooth to something else is tooth to fingernail. Yeah, the fingernail will win. Tooth to sellotape being cut between your front teeth. Tooth to ice. I made an Instagram reel recently. I mean, we might have seen it. Okay, so ice chewers are dangerous, crazy people. Okay, so you need to uh, it can form them. Even if you've got like a reservoir bridge or a quite a, a fragile, large class four composite, you do not want your patient to uh, bite on their crusty pizza or baguette on directly on that tooth and tear it. Or corn on the cob, another dangerous thing to attack with your bridge or uh, adhesive restoration. Right, so. Assuming the tooth to something else, you've educated your patient. The only other cause of mechanical failure is tooth to tooth. And so when we talk about tooth to tooth, we can branch it into two different things. Okay, There is functional failure and then there's power functional failure. Exactly. So the way you know you want to check whether you think the patient's occlusion is pathologic or physiologic. So we're going to look at the rest of the dentition. You can't really just look at one tooth. You're going to look at the patient's, the rest of their teeth. Is there signs of wear, cracking, fracture? On the other teeth if there is you know the patient's doing something weird right they're grinding teeth they're you know they're, they're doing something that they shouldn't it's a non you know it's a power functional movement and then when we talk about i believe you had a whole episode on constricted envelopes constricted chewing pattern envelopes so again if the envelope of function isn't respected you're going to have forces excessive forces especially on the upper incisors and that can lead to early failure of your restoration. Let's break that down, Mahmoud. Okay, someone who might have never heard of OBAD before, never heard, uh, never seen our previous episodes on occlusion, which we haven't actually talked about the envelope of function so much in our previous episodes. You really boil it down even more fundamental than that. But what is the envelope of function? Let's just talk about that in a moment. Okay, so essentially the way we chew, okay, isn't just down to your teeth. So you've got your neuromuscular system, your, your muscles fire in a particular way. You've got ligaments that are a particular length, you know, the, the bones of the jaw are a particular length. So the jaw has essentially this pattern of movement, this, what we call, so on OBAB, I call it the mandibular swing. Okay, so it wants to swing in a particular way. Now, if that teeth happen to be in the way of how the muscles want to move the jaw, yeah, you could, you know, accidentally be bumping into these teeth a bit more than you should. So you're adding extra force onto the teeth. But essentially the envelope of function is, is that movement that the pandible wants to do when you're chewing a sandwich, when you're speaking, when you're swallowing, etc. So that's sort of built in. And what you want to do is not put stuff in the way of how the mandible wants to move. I like to call the envelope of function the chewing space. You know, the word, I mean, the patient we can think of, which is, is tr- has got trouble written all over it, is the patient who's almost edge to edge class three, but not quite. So maybe they have like, you know, one millimeter overjet, like the lower incisors are right up against the palatal of the upper incisor. Okay. So when this patient is chewing, they don't have much chewing space. So as they make that teardrop shape anteriorly, if you trace the the movement, it's just classically a a teardrop, right? Uh, And so as they open, they come forward, the mandibular swing, and then they come back. Uh, And what we have here is a high frequency 
low intensity because functional forces are lower than parafunctional but they're still you know 30-40% of your maximum force they're still decent so if you're constantly chewing 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 during the day during you know from eating and, and um, all the other functional things that we do every time you swallow your teeth come together and they're constantly bashing then something is going to happen either teeth will wear teeth will chip, teeth will migrate, right? Mobility and movement over time. Uh, and that depends on the patient's own genetic and biological, I guess, the weakest link factors, which is something else we talk yeah. about. But omelette function is a chewing space. And so the classically, if you if you have this patient, just like you said, who's broken their class four composite three times in a year, and you've looked everywhere else, and you think that, okay, there's there aren't many cracks and there aren't much signs of parafunctional grinding, you've got to look, how much overjet do we have? Is it potentially a restricted envelope or a constricted envelope or a frictional chewing pattern? All these things we talked about before, but essentially it boils down to there is not enough chewing space. Yeah, and the only way you're going to pick that up is if you look. I mean, I've, I'll admit to, you know, in the first few years of practicing, sometimes I've, I've restored a tooth and then got the patient to bite and then realized that oh, there's just no room for my restoration. Or even more embarrassingly, there's no opposing tooth. You know, you've, you've, you're getting the patient to check uh, check the occlusion, and there's no opposing tooth. So really, it's, it's about checking beforehand. And we talk a lot about checking for phrenitis as well. So even though physically you might look and there might be space for your restoration, it's very important. So what phrenitis is, is when you take your finger and you put it sort of on the facial surface of, a say, an upper incisor, and you get the patient to tap their back teeth together. You're just getting them to... By into MRP, just ask them to tap, tap, tap. And what you're checking for is you're seeing whether you can feel that tooth sort of vibrate and sort of get pushed out, you know, a little bit as the patient taps together. If that's the case, it might indicate that actually there's just a little bit too much force on that tooth. So maybe it's in the way of how the mandible wants to bite together. You also want to check from it just for when the patient grinds forward, grinds side to side. Again, you want to feel, is that tooth being pushed out as the patient's grinding? Again, is that tooth taking a bit too much of the load when the patient grinds side to side? Um, that's sort of my preferred way of checking uh, the envelope function. I think you also talk about doing the dinner plate test, which is something we, we show. But that's really, really important. And something that's not really taught very well. And you want to check that with the patient sitting up as well as lying down. Because we don't usually chew when we're lying down. Exactly. And, and so when you're doing these functional checks, it's sitting up. When you're doing the parafunctional checks, it might be when the patient's uh, laying down. You're completely right. Now, let's talk about, the, uh, just finish off this chapter of uh, is there enough chewing space? Let's assume there is not enough chewing space and, and you've come to the conclusion and then you're going to now communicate this to the patient and you're going to get your hands out. You're going to show them what's happening and take some photos. Ideally, we know the answer is orthodontics. Right, to create some overjet uh, and that kind of stuff, you know, create some overjet, create some chewing space, and then we can restore the case. But let's talk about some cheat codes. Let's talk about some ways that perhaps we could do it. Now, some of these are kind of regarded as naughty ways of doing it. But if the patient's you know, point blank not going to have orthodontics and you've got to stick something there, maybe they're getting married tomorrow, then what can you do to make sure that by the time they walk through the door, this composite's going to uh, survive? So um, any tips you can give us? Survive the regard? honeymoon. You're going to pull out the <laughs> yes. Robin Hood analogy, aren't you? So, yeah, yes. one way is look at the opposing teeth. A lot of the time in these constricted envelope cases, because the teeth have been sort of rubbing over time, not only have you chipped the upper composite, but that lower tooth has, you know, had this like sharpened edge, you know, this sort of angular wear on the facial. You end up with a very thin edge, which then chips and leaves like these little, you know, sharp bits of enamel sticking up. So you can do yourself and the patient a favor and just adjust those. You're creating a little bit of space by taking away a little bit from the lower, giving it to the upper as you per your Robin Hood analogy. So that's one way to do it. 
And then, I mean, already we said that the ideal is ortho, but if they're not going to do that, if you can't take away from the lower, then really you're, the only other option is, is you're going to have to create room by repositioning the mandible by opening the bite. But then you're into far more complicated territory. So the, the, the cheat code is look at those lower incisors and see whether you can maybe do a little bit of enamoplasty. And I usually tell the patients, I'm going to manicure your lower teeth. It tends to leave them nice and smooth and they like it. And I think getting the mirror out and showing the patient and getting your probe and saying, look, can you see that this lower tooth is sticky outy and your upper tooth is sticky inny, right? And, and they get that. Usually it's, it's, the, it's, it's the way, right? They can see that there's no chewing space. And they say that, okay, if you know, you're getting married tomorrow or whatever, and, uh, and ideally, and you need to plant that seed, ideally, it'd be really good if we can just bring this upper tooth out and bring this lower tooth back in so that everything is going to be nice and straight. You'll have a beautiful, healthy smile and these filling will actually not keep breaking. This is why it's been breaking, Mrs. Smith. Can you see this? Can you see that there's, it's getting in the way? And that's powerful for patients. So then what you need to then get is consent for, look, the only way I can resolve this now for you and make sure it survives your honeymoon is I'm going to tickle, I'm going to manicure the lower front tooth just a tiny bit with this little disc, just mostly to get rid of any sharp, annoying bits. Um, and then what you would also do, perhaps in the upper composite is, and this you showed, you demonstrated this beautifully on the course, is bringing out the composite a little bit more labelly. Right. So you want to bring it a little bit more labelly. And now this has other nuances like, OK, are you now going from a class four? Are you now veneering it at the same time? Because you need, to, you need to have enough thickness, because if you make it too labial, you're going to have too thin of an edge. So you need to then beef it up labelly and then it becomes from a composite class four. It comes a class four stroke composite veneer. veneer. And sometimes that might be the right way to go if the patient's not going to have ortho, I guess. Yeah, I mean, probably one of the biggest reasons for failure in class four composites is not leaving enough thickness of composite. You want it to be at least a millimeter thick, buccal lingually, especially on the edge. Bringing it out facially does have some, you know, aesthetic implications, especially if you're just doing the one tooth. But it's usually better than not having anything there at all. And if you are on a strict time frame, a lot of people would rather just have a front tooth, even if it is maybe slightly, you know, talking like half a millimeter labial you can do a mock-up show the patient and say look this is if we can't if i can't make it look like this it's just not going to work you know with the adjustment of the lower tooth and then they have to make a decision ultimately ortho is usually the best idea but sometimes we're stuck we have to deal with the situation we're given with with mock-ups what i like to do is use a, i've got a whole stash of expired composite listen if anyone around the world has got some expired composite post it to me i'll give you my address just send it to i i, I use a ton of that stuff right uh, and and so in samples i go to like dentistry shows and stuff and i just collect all these composite samples which I don't, i'll never use but i use it for my mock-ups right so you put it there you use the optra thumb and you get it looking as you want to right uh, and then once you cure it again this is no etch no bond the most common question i get when i talk about this is, hey do you etch it do you bond it first no you don't need to etch it bond it just or get, get a nice dry tooth uh, and and put it on sculpt it i love to use my kc3c instrument which i you've seen me talk about before uh, and i get roughly the shape which i think will respect the chewing space but also get decent aesthetics i cure it and now I can check the occlusion and make sure I, and, and i can even get a rugby ball diamond burr and adjust this composite and adjust the lower tooth if appropriate and then now i can take a putty of this scenario now even though in this perhaps emergency appointment i am not layering um, I, I do actually do 99% of my dentistry one shade wonder. I'm, I'm a one shade wonder kind of guy, right? I know you, uh, you're very skilled at layering and stuff, but I'm a one shade wonder kind of guy. So I'll just uh, stick in the one shade. The it's all we need, exactly. Uh, so uh, I, I'm, now, even though I'm not layering, the benefit of the putty is that I can just whack it on, do my etching bonding, whack it on, and just get plenty of paste on there and just sculpt it and not have to worry about the occlusion afterwards. It's just polishing afterwards. Yeah. 
And that's what you should be doing as well if, say, you know, the other scenario you talked about where we're replacing a class four that's just cosmetically failing. Everything else is fine. You've got all the data that you need for the occlusion and everything right there. So I think it's an underused technique, really. Doing mock-up takes a minute, you know, five minutes if you're just starting out. Okay, Mahmoud, let's now talk about the, the final bits, the technical bits, right? Let's talk about the dots and lines. I know you're going to talk us through a little step-by-step, which will really make it tangible. But as a quick tip here is if you've got, let's say, two dots on an upper central incisor from your lower incisors, right? And I'm okay for a dot to be on my class 4 composite. But if for some reason it's a very fragile composite, then I may, I'll make sure that dot is, is, is a lighter dot, or no dot, okay, as long as there is another dot on there. And then now we've got to talk about something really important is that if the patient had an incomplete overbite, i.e. there were no dots, the front teeth weren't touching, then that's fine. That makes your job a lot easier in terms of dots. But if they started off with some dots, it's good practice to have a dot still. So if you've got a couple of dots, uh, one on the composite, one on your enamel where the tooth is unrestored, then the, the dot on the composite, on tap, tap, tap will be a little bit lighter. So maybe the, the dot on the enamel will hold shim. Shim is eight microns. We use it, check the occlusion. And the dot on the composite will pu- just pull shim. So it's lighter. So that's good practice. And then if it's a really fragile composite, we check for protrusive and excursion left and right. And often you're going to accept having a line on your remaining enamel but maybe the line on the composite will be much lighter again. Because remember, what we're doing is we're sticking a piece of plastic to some tooth that's going to be subject to shear forces. So really, it can't uh, do as much work as what your natural tooth can do. But what I'm going to let you do now is uh, talk about the step-by-step of actually getting to that scenario. Yeah, so as the, the person who asked the question said, you know, I'm going to check the occlusion beforehand. So that's where we start. Okay, so... We'll go through this in detail on OBAB, but essentially you want to make a record of what the existing inclusion is. So we're going to check that the patient has a repeatable MIP, right? We're going to check, just get them to bite together and just have a look. That will also tell you if they have, if you have space for your restoration. Is there a constricted envelope? Has the tooth over erupted if the class four has been there a long time? Basically check you've got space, not just in the MIP, right? Get them to grind as well and see if the lower tooth then passes through the area where your composite is going to be. Because if that happens and you put composite there, if the patient has happens to grind that pattern, they're going to knock your composite off. Okay, so this is especially important if you're doing edge bonding, you're doing composite veneers, always check, you know, the excursions. Where am I going to put the composite? Is it going to be in the way of those lower incisors? Like you've already said, we're going to check shim stock holes. Okay, so I'll check the tooth I'm working on and I'll check a few on either side as well. Document the teeth that hold shim stock and the teeth that drag shim stock. So we talk about Put the shim stock in between the teeth, get the patient to close, squeeze, and you pull on the shim stock. Now, if it slides out with a little bit of resistance, that's a drag. If it slides out with no resistance, that's a no hold. If you can't pull it out or you tear it, that's a hold. So document those. And, and you all you have, have to do around. is just tell the nurse, right? You're doing this and, and you educate your nurse. This is shim stock foil. I use it to precisely check the bite. And then you're, you're just speaking out loud while the nurse is now going to be trained to record shim holds, colon, these certain teeth, shim drags, certain teeth. Uh, and then the rest of the teeth yeah. will assume to have no hold. Yeah, exactly. You don't have to do the whole mouth. You know, I'll just do the tooth I'm working on and a couple of teeth on either side. It's really all you need when you're doing one tooth. Okay. Once we've done that, then we want to check the fremitus. So again, finger on the tooth you're going to restore and maybe the one next to it as well and just get the patient to tap, tap, tap. Can you feel a vibration? If you can, again, you're just telling the nurse, from it is positive, upper right one, 
upper, you know, upper right central, upper left central. But you're, you're checking the parameters with their, they have this class four cavity there, right? They haven't got their comps. So you, your job is now to so check yeah. the parameters. But really what that, what information that's giving you is, is there parameters with the situation they're in at the moment? Uh, there might not be parameters, but when you now put your comps it later, then that's the reason you're doing it. You've got a baseline recording, right? Correct. Yeah. Think about it this way. If there is parameters already without you having restored the tooth, and then at the end you check and you, and you haven't checked, you, you don't know that there is fremitus. And then you do your restoration. And now you're checking for fremitus. And you feel, okay, there is fremitus here. And you keep adjusting your restoration. And now your restoration is out of contact. And then the contact's Getting on the thinner tooth. Getting thinner and thinner still, and thinner. Yeah. And the contact's still on the tooth. And there's still fremitus. And then you start adjusting the tooth. Now you've actually changed things. Because you don't know what they were like before. Now you could end up removing more enamel. You could end up essentially unnecessarily removing tooth structure or composite when you wouldn't have needed to. Okay, so it's always important to find out what the state is beforehand. And also the, the problem with thinning the composite is even if you're using a single shade, it becomes grayer, becomes more translucent, it affects your aesthetics. A hundred percent, hundred percent. And if it's thinner, it's weaker, you know, and the tooth to something else becomes a problem first time they have their French baguette. And then we're gonna check the uh, bite marks with some articulating paper. So uh, I think both of us like to do it the same way. So I like to check the excursions first. So dry teeth, Put the red paper in, get the patient to close, get them to grind in all directions. Forward, left, right. You're going to see some marks. Um, and then I like to, you know, once I'm done with the red paper, I get them to open, stay open, put the blue paper in, and you get them to tap, tap, tap. tap just this, telling them to tap, tap, tap seems to work. That's the one thing patients seem to get easily. It's tap, tap, tap on your back teeth. All right, and that will give you your Now, those dot. new to occlusion, Mahmoud, why are you checking the excursions first and then checking the MIP? This is a, a basic tip, but I think it's, you know, for those who aren't doing it already, they'll be like, oh, wow, that makes so much sense. Yeah, I mean, because if you do your tap tap first, then you've got your dot, and then you put the red paper and you get them to grind, they just smear the blue dot that you had everywhere, and it's hard to tell where the actual dot is. So it's easier to do the excursions first and then do the tap tap tap. Absolutely. And then you need to document that. My preferred method, I think it's yours as well, is just take an intraoral camera photo, right? Then it's on the screen. I don't have to worry about it. If you don't have an intraoral camera, you could either just try and remember it or you could sketch it out. Okay, it's really easy. Or you could describe it. You know, you can write a note saying protrusive contact on adjacent tooth, you know. And really with the tap tap, you're trying to see how far is the MIP contact going to be from my margin? Am I going to, mm. is it going to be on composite? Is it going to be on tooth? And where is it relative to my margin? Because I want the MIP contact at least a millimeter away from my margin. It's such a huge tip there. I mean, if, if you guys, if anyone here is multitasking, you're doing the gardening, you're running, and you just missed that tip, you chopping don't onions. want your dot. You're chopping onions. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the people who chop onions are good listeners usually, okay? Uh, the Petrushati who chop onions are, are the best. So the dot should be onions. either on enamel or fully on composite. It should not be on the interface, which just makes sense, right? You don't want to put all this force through your poor little interface. Absolutely. And that's why the reason you're checking this before is because it might alter your prep design. So especially on class threes, for example, you might not bevel as far as the MIP contact, for example, if you know where it is, right? Because you don't want that thin composite that's sort of feathering down into nothing to be where all the occlusal contact is going to hit because then that's going to fracture, which means it's going to stain and etc. Okay. So we've documented our existing inclusion. So shim holds, fremitus, MIP contact, your blue dot, and excursions, your red lines. And you've documented... That takes a minute. Like you, you said all these things and people thinking, whoa, you're checking all this. You're going crazy about the occlusion, but really it'll just, it's, it just takes a minute, man. It's so quick. It's so quick. It's only quick 
when the stuff is ready. Mm. So your nurse needs to know. Have uh, the shim can you get the ready. Millis forceps out? Uh, can you get the shim stock? What's the shim stock? What's shim uh, stock? It's the silver yeah. one. Oh, um, how do you open it? Oh, get scissors. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But if it's ready, it, it literally takes a minute, okay? So once you're done and you've documented that, now you're going to go ahead and restore the tooth. Now, if you're lucky enough that the class four that's there is just failing aesthetically, you're hopefully going to take our advice and maybe use a putty to conform. It'll just make your life easier. If not, you're going to use your digital matrix, as they say, you know, your thumb at the back and, and do whatever you, is you need to do. And then once you're done, that's when you're going to check the occlusion. And now you can actually check it against the pre-op occlusion that you've documented. And for a class four, the, the way I like to think about occlusion, I think this is how we do it in OBAB, because occlusion can be very, like it's such a big topic, right? When people start getting confused, just break it down into five occlusal positions. And you can do this with any restoration, anywhere in the mouth. And you're gonna think about five positions, okay? Position number one is your center correlation. So if we go back a little bit, we did this in occlusion part two together, right? We talked about center correlation, but essentially it's And when... we talked about it in the last tooth in the arch syndrome episode. Yes, yeah, yeah. So lots of stuff to go back and listen to if this quick description isn't enough, but it's essentially it's when the condyles are fully seated in the socket, okay, in their snug position. I think let's skip over CR, buddy, because we can Ooh. just talk about five yeah. hours for CR. So, so in yeah. this case, we know that we're conforming and therefore we know our joint position That's is, you know, we can just ignore yeah. that because we're just keeping everything the same. Yeah, so MIP, so CR, you don't have to worry about it, okay? Now, MIP, what's the secret with MIP? Generally is force distribution. You want as many teeth to contact evenly as much as possible. So your dot on your class four needs to not be high, essentially. It shouldn't be the only tooth that's touching. Simple enough, right? And ideally you want the tooth to contact where it used to before. The other thing we already spoke about is the location uh, relative to the margin, but also when we're looking at the lower teeth, even if there is space restoratively, but your MIP contact is against a really sharp bit on the lower tooth, this may be the time to smooth that lower tooth down and then ensure you still get MIP contact because you're, you can build your composite as much as you want, right? Because hopefully that'll prevent that lower tooth from chipping later on. So again, just try and get broad areas of contact on as many teeth as possible. So that's MIP, it's very simple. Then you've got your pathways, right? So pathways is basically just the path along the palatal that the lower incisors or lower teeth track as the patient grinds forward, grinds sideways. And the secret here is, is we wanna spread the load so you want your contact to be on a broad area of contact. You don't want a skinny line. I think you give the uh, analogy of, do you want to be stepped on by a stiletto or by some flat shoes? Flats. <laughs> yeah. So you want flat shoes. You want broad. And we give a lot of good visuals. Nice, in thick lines. Nice, thick lines. Not these skinny Big, chicken scratches. Yeah. Because that's spreading the load on that area. The other thing is, let's say you're doing an upper right central. And you, when you check the occlusion beforehand, the upper left central had a line on it. What you want to make sure at the end is that line is still there. Because if mm. the line on the tooth you haven't restored isn't there anymore, but there is a line on the tooth you have restored, it means you've put all that force in the protrusive guidance on your restoration. Yep. It may be fine, but it might be too much. Because if you're relying on just looking with your eyes without inking it up, then you're, you're, you're missing that little detail that, hey, there was a line there before, now there isn't. And therefore my restoration or my, my tooth with the restoration is having too much of a line. You're, you're completely right. Yeah. Okay. So broad lines, try and share the guidance if it was shared before. So that's your pathways. Then edge to edge. And edge to edge really is, is where, you know, ceramic and composite restorations live or die. Because 
especially if you see someone with worn edges. And I mean, who doesn't have some worn edges, to be honest with you, in this day and age? That's where your, your restoration needs to have, again, broad areas of contact. So if your composite edge isn't at least a millimeter thick, how can you get a broad area of contact? You can't. If your composite comes down to a knife edge, it's going to be thin. It's going to be a thin area of contact. And then it's just easier to fracture it. So again, you need to build that into your how you're, you're building your restoration. So have at least a millimeter thickness along the incisal edge. And then when you get the patient to go edge to edge, just check that you've got broad areas of contact that again, ideally are shared if possible. So in protrusive, if I'm restoring one central, ideally I want to see when they're edge to edge in protrusive that I've got contact on both centrals on broad flat areas of contact. And it's got to be smooth. And, and that transition from the pathway as they make that palatal uh, transition to the edges, there's no jolt. It's a nice, smooth transition, which I know you talk about uh, so much. But these checks, these five positions are checked pre-op and post-op. Exactly. And then you've got a reference because either it stops you taking away too much or taking away too little because you have a reference. And the fifth position, again, we're probably not going to go into too much detail here. It's called crossover. But essentially, it's when they go onto edge to edge and then past edge to edge. And really the management of crossover is all about smooth transitions. We spend a lot of time on OBAB going over smooth transitions because smoothness really is probably the underrated hero of occlusion. Cannot underestimate how important having things smooth and not increasing resistance is to occlusion. And the last, you're gonna check your envelope. Okay, so again, this is something we do not do. You're, sorry, not last thing, you're gonna check your shim stock holds. Okay, so like you said earlier, if they had contact on this tooth in MIP before treatment, really, ideally, they should have it again at the end. Why? Because if you don't, that tooth could over erupt, could move, right? You've left it in a, maybe a slightly unstable position. So you want to replicate what the patient had before. And then you'll check your envelope. So when they're lying down, I'll do my frematis check and I'll compare it to what I had before. And the last thing, I'll sit them up and I'll do the frematis check again. Brilliant. Now, because of the interest of time, yeah. I'm just going to say uh, that was brilliant. I really enjoyed that chat. That was fantastic. And I think we've made it very tangible about uh, occlusion on class four uh, composite restorations, which again, no one talks about. Uh, I'm just going to uh, end by Mahmoud uh, reading to everyone this awesome comment we had at the end of module one. So Obab has five modules uh, and this is just hilarious. <laughs> I know which so one you're going to read now. <laughs> Me and you were so scared that the first module would be the boring one, right? Because it's quite yeah. uh, lecture heavy, where later we get cases and videos and uh, that kind of stuff. So we were so scared uh, about that. But then the feedback has just blown us away from just module one, yeah. the boring one, right? So <laughs> Dr. Claire Lang, uh, thank you so much for your comment. says, excellent module, guys. Thank you so much. I could literally kiss you both for clarifying between anterior and posterior guidance in a very clear way, especially. But I actually have a few takeaways from each section. The models and diagrams used are also helpful also. Excited for module two, but very grateful. I can revisit module one whenever I want. Smiley face. I mean, we've had so many great uh, testimonials and reviews already. <laughs> That's my favorite. <laughs> yeah. yeah, definitely. That made me laugh. That's brilliant. She's clearly passionate about occlusion, eh? Yes. <laughs> This, this is our tribe you know, this is our tribe yeah. um, not because we're some sort of like oh, tribal like mm. uh, uh, crazy people about occlusion we just want success we just want restorative success and part of that is, 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 is occlusion and like I said in the first module we could have called occlusion basics and beyond we could have called it the restorative course we could have called it that because it's, it's, it's one and the same you know it's, we, we, we spend too much time uh, isolating the two but they're one and the same you know no, I was just going to say there's nothing as practice building as when you get that patient that comes in and says I've had this restorative done like six times in the past two years every time i do it it comes off within two months can you help me and then 
it's usually an occlusal problem because most people just do not understand it. And then when you fix it and they come in, I usually make a bet with my patients. I'll say, okay, I'm just doing a bet. I can make it last at least five years. I'm underestimating just to <laughs> make myself look good. And then when you do hit that mark, it's just, you know, it's, it's crazy. The patients think you're a genius. And you just have to make sure you educate them about the whole tooth to something else. You know, if they play rugby, make sure the mouth guard, uh, the whole sellotape, yeah. the hairpin, the ice chewing, the the the, the chewing, uh, what foods and how to consume certain foods when you have bonding. It's, it's about part of aftercare of your bonding, right? It's a piece of plastic glued to the edge of a tooth, ultimately, right? But uh, yeah. you control and educate them on that and then do all the things we said in this episode, which is tooth, tooth to tooth, then really the only thing that can get the patient now is caries and stuff. So hopefully uh, that part is uh, under control as well. Mahmoud, thanks so much for giving up your time once again for the Petrus Rati uh, and you are always a welcome be- welcome guest and uh, I'm sure we'll get you back soon. I think next episode we should talk about the whole thing about Fremitus, right? It's a, such a fascinating topic, right? Fremitus, the management, uh, is it okay to observe and watch Fremitus? So if you guys want that, I'm not going to do it until we get enough comments on the video below that you want this and then we'll make it happen. If there's no comments, then we won't do it. <laughs> Fair enough. Thanks, buddy. All right, man. Well, there we have it, guys. Who knew that we could talk just 40 minutes and just scratch the surface of occlusion on a class four restoration? Hopefully, there are lots of gems in there, lots of peripheral things that you perhaps you may not have considered. And of course, if you knew everything they're talking about, it was hopefully good revision for you. And after all, who doesn't love learning about occlusion? If you want to do a deep dive, 30 plus hours into occlusion uh, online, just like in this format, actually individual videos, lessons that are five minutes long, 20 minutes long, a few odd half an hour lessons and lots of clinical videos and case walkthroughs, then check out occlusion.online. It's occlusion basics and beyond online course with me and Mahmood. If you are looking to take the next step in learning occlusion, that's going to make your restorative dentistry predictable. If you're not interested in learning more about occlusion or you're already enrolled on OBAB, then if you enjoy the podcast, don't forget to give it a rating. Wherever you listen to, it really helps me a lot. But if you give the podcast a rating and leave a comment if you can. Thanks so much. And we'll join you in the next episode. And by the way, if you answer just a few questions, you can get a CPD or a CE certificate by being a protrusive premium member. You know the drill, guys. Just answer those questions and you'll get your CPD emailed to you. Thank you again. I'll catch you next time.